this is Mark Rabin. Welcome to uh, the podcast, episode 31. Um, today, this is the fifth Ask Us Anything that I've done uh, together with Greg Jacobson, who's, of course, a co-founder and CEO of Kinexus. This was recorded and released on February 25th, 2016. We'd invite you to go to kinexus.com slash webinars if you want to find old episodes and sign up for future webinars. We have um, outside speakers coming up in March and April. Greg and I are going to do episode six of the Ask Us Anything in April. We still have lots of questions to go through, and uh, we've had lots of great questions coming in so far, and we hope you enjoy the ones that we are going to tackle today. Thanks for listening. Greg Jacobson, also from Kinexus. It's really fun, Mark, because this is an experiment in itself. I don't think when we did our first one, we ever imagined we were doing episode five. So here we are. Yeah, the, the questions keep rolling in. I think we're going to be doing these um, for a while. We do have a bunch of questions that we got in advance. I would invite folks who are watching live uh, as a benefit for joining us live. Uh, feel free to type in a question. Um, I'll try to monitor the chat window. If you type slash Q, that helps bring it up as a, a question for us. So let's dive right in. Um, we, we got a question from Ed, who says, you know, we're looking to ramp up our lean efforts in the engineering area. Many highly technical people are resisting. It seems that they almost consider lean beneath them. Have you any suggestions to help get over this hump? Um, I have experience working, you know, engineers and manufacturing companies. Greg is doctors, you know, physicians are highly technical. What, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I think really this gets down to the, to the, observation and the recognition that, you know, these principles can be applied to anything. Um, we've seen applications of Kaizen, Lean, Continuous Improvement into personal lives, into family structures, into organization structures. We've seen it we, here at Kinexus. We have all different types of, of customers doing all different types of work. Intel is one of our customers, and they're doing some really highly technical things, but they recognize that they can benefit from, um, applying a problem-solving structure to the problems they're trying to solve. It doesn't really matter kind of what widget, if you will, that you're passing through. Yeah, and we have, I mean, we have customers within Kinexus. Uh, architects uh, are using uh, continuous improvement practices and principles. Engineers can do this. Um, I think, you know, there's a tendency, when you think of, you know, the software developers who use, lean and agile methods uh, right. that are they're hopefully improving the way they run their businesses and do their work over time. I think one of the keys, you know, this whole question of resistance to lean, resistance to change, we ask why are engineers or, or whatever resistant, I, th I think we need to understand why. I think in a lot of contexts, unfortunately, lean has meant we're going to tell you how to do your job differently. And I think people rightfully resist that, whether they are nurses or doctors or less technical staff. I think a lot of that is just human nature. So I think if you engage people in improvement, that helps. If you solve, help people solve problems that matter to them, I think that's how you engage people and reduce resistance. Greg, I mean, do you, you have other thoughts? I mean, you know, you, you've worked a lot with doctors trying to get them involved with lean. How, how do you first approach them to even introduce this idea and see if they want to uh, participate? Well, I think really the initial conversation has to be about the work that they're doing. And so it really has to do with structuring the conversation around 
we're trying to make your life easier. And as soon as you start the conversation in a way that puts them at the center, puts them as the customer, if you will, in that transaction, then all of a sudden someone's gonna someone's gonna listen in and say, well, wait a minute, yeah, I mean, I, my work life is hard. There's there are things that I'd be happy to to work on to to make my life easier. And then what you end up realizing is that you can grow the, that structure and that framework and the scope of what you're focusing on really, really wider and wider and wider as time goes on. I think if you ask them to come into your world and, and talk about something that's not relevant to them, they're going to immediately kind of turn you off, turn you off and be turned off at the same time. Yeah. All right. So our next question, uh, I think it's kind of flows into this topic. Well, how do you, uh, Madison asked, how do you engage associates in problem solving? So I think, Greg, I think you already touched on that a little bit. I think it's a matter of not, you, you can't just put up a memo that says, hey, everybody, submit your idea into Kinexus or put it up here on the bulletin board. You can't just hang signs and post memos or give one speech and expect people to participate. It's, it's really more of an ongoing discussion. You go out, get out of your office as a leader, go see people in the workplace, look for people that seem to be struggling with something or frustrated with something. Talk to them. What ideas do you have? What problems have you faced today? What bugs you, I think is a really powerful question. But then also tie it back into asking, well, what can we fix within our department that helps prevent it from being just a, a laundry list of complaints? And I think to, to add to that, when you're in, especially when you're first engaging associates with a problem-solving kind of framework or a session, I don't think that you need to think of it as, well, I have this one opportunity to teach them everything I know about how to do problem-solving, right? It's, it's really kind of baby steps in recognizing that people really, I mean, before I had even heard of Lean or any of these improvement concepts, um, I could have been engaged in problem solving and had someone and said, oh, okay, we'll read this 250 page book. You need to, you know, become an expert. I'm going to teach you everything about A3 thinking all in this one session. You can immediately be turned off. It's like when you try to learn a language and someone's correcting you at every word that you're speaking, sometimes you just, just let people, you know, yeah, they'll do it wrong a little bit, but just get them engaged in the process. And then over a period of, you know, weeks, months, years, decades, people can become experts at um, doing, you know, continuous improvement or doing problem solving, but they don't need to become experts on that first session or the first engagement. Right. Yeah, you've got to learn by doing. Doing means making mistakes, and we learn through making mistakes. So I think, you know, if you're observing someone doing problem solving, um, you need to ask sometimes, well, if it seems like they're going down a bad path, what's the worst that could happen? Sometimes you need to let people go down the path of doing a sloppy job of root cause analysis, because then that'll just reinforce to them when that causes problems later um, that they didn't really ask the right kind of wise questions. And I think, you know, my, my first response to this question was really talking about just engaging people in improvement a lot of that initial improvement is looking for things that we can just just do it, just fix it. But then there's that level of problem solving and all sorts of different techniques. And I'm, I totally agree with you, Greg. You can only you should only teach people 
the amount of information that they can go put into practice. So learn, do, learn, do, kind of goes hand in hand rather than trying to, I think the whole, the big batch model of some Six Sigma or Lean Sigma training programs is flawed. We're going to go into a classroom for a week and then you're going to go and do stuff. Like why, why does it have to be such a big batch? Know your audience. Know your audience. How much can they absorb? How much can they learn? Yeah. Well, our next question is also along these lines. Um, is coaching the key to operator performance improvement? And I, I, I would say, yeah, but it's not just operators. It's not just frontline associates. I mean, I think coaching is really the key to performance improvement in any setting. What, what are your thoughts, Greg? I think that if you are – let's just think, think about this for a second. Typically, the process improvement, continuous improvement, lean folks have an organization are greatly outnumbered, right? Oftentimes, a thousand-person organization might have a department of one to four people that are really responsible for doing this type of work. So then you need to think about, well, how do you scale yourself, right? And, and doing things in a way where you are enabling people by either being a part of every single step or by doing the work for them is going to significantly hinder your ability to scale your influence and your impact in the organization, which is, which is why going from that kind of, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to the, the rapid improvement event model only doesn't scale versus I'm going to go in and coach leaders, how to be coaches in their area is going to scale much better. So I don't think that I don't I don't see any other possible way for a organization or that small process bourbon team to have a true impact in an organization without thinking of themselves as coaches. And I, I would add, I think coaching is the way to improve the performance of coaching. You know, been in situations where I'm observing a manager or a leader who's acting as coach. I'm serving as the coach to the coach, which might sound kind of silly to people, but even coaches need to review their performance. Are they being effective? Are they asking the right kinds of questions? Are they um, saying things that are inadvertently disengaging or threatening? Now, you could maybe take that a step further and say, well, if I'm coaching the coach, who's coaching me and <laughs> how well I'm coaching the coach? But I mean, I think this idea of, of coaching is really important. It's been, if anything, trendy in the lane world. I'm going to hold up a book um, that was sent to me. I interviewed the author uh, for a podcast that's going to be out next week. This book's called The Coaching Habit. And I, you know, I bring this up partly because I think it would resonate with you, Greg, where he says, you know, coaching, you have to take steps to make it a daily habit. And maybe I'll hand it off over to you here. He talks about the book, The Power of Habit, which I know is a favorite of yours. So what, what are your thoughts about making coaching a habit for people, Greg? Well, I think that, so let's, let's get into the power of habit, the, the concept of, you know, cue routine benefit. And so that's truly how you're going to create that, that habit loop. And I think that people that are good coaches or good teachers that kind of take a, a mentoring role versus the, I'm going to be the team leader role. Um, are going to 
really have an opportunity to do that cycle a ton of times because they can, you know, send someone off with a little piece of information and they can do that with, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 different teams. And then they can be, that, that routine is happening. And then the benefit of, of allowing people to be empowered to go do their own improvement work is that you see the improvement work that they're doing, right? So you're immediately going to be, without realizing it, going to be creating a, um, a habit loop for yourself by doing that. And um, it versus, okay, I'm going to only engage and going to you know, lead this improvement effort well, then your, your routine is so much longer, and then, then your benefit is, once again, going to take so much longer to go. So I actually think that you could build a quicker habit loop by, by the coaching model than you could by the doing model, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so our next question is from uh, Christina, and it's been interesting. We've got questions so far from people from manufacturing, financial services, and now uh, a question from healthcare. Christina asks, should leaders have their own version of a huddle board or a similar framework? I mean, I, I, I'm sure we'll give different reasons why. I mean, I'm sure Greg and I would both say the answer is yes. You know, I've seen in, in some of the really high-performing lean healthcare organizations, senior leadership team has a, a huddle board, a lean daily management board, that mirrors and parallels what the rest of the organization uses. So they have their uh, high-level executive metrics. They are huddling around that board, talking about the top issues of the day. They're bringing up new opportunities for improvement. And I think it's not just a matter of superficially modeling the behavior you want to see in the organization. They use these huddle boards because it's helpful for them, for a leadership team to really function as a team as opposed to being just a, a collection of executives who sit near each other. I think a board uh, is very important for people at that level. Yeah, I, I think it's really hard to expect people to, to do what you're asking them to do if they don't see that you're doing it yourself, right? And so, you know, like for our, our annual meeting um, at, at Canx, we set our, our strategy. We're essentially doing strategy deployment. We, don't use that term, but, um, you know, I, I set the example by saying, well, you know, here, here are my goals, here are my metrics, and those are, you know, public in our system, and, um, and then everyone else then says, okay, great, well, all right, so I now know what the company's goals are, and so marketing, how am I going to help the company get to those goals, and so, you know, um, Maggie Miller, our, our marketing director, will say, here are my goals and here are my metrics and here's my plan on, on getting those. And that kind of cascades down. And um, that really, really is going to be more powerful and become, a, become an organizational. Because we're talking about going from either individual habits to group of habits, organizational habits. It's going to go in an organizational habit a lot faster if they're seeing that the senior management they're actually doing this, right? I mean, they have their own processes that um, in many ways can be obviously improved as any process can be improved. And so mm -hmm. it's a really powerful statement. And I think people can tell when you're doing that genuinely or whether you're just doing that for show. Yeah. All right, next question. Um, another question from Madison. Um, she, she says, standard work versus telling a story. Which have you found more effective when engaging associates in a lean culture. On one hand, 
We believe having standard templates or standard work to follow is vital. On the other hand, telling a personal story in training gets associates to empathize. Um, so if I understand the question, I, I, don't, I don't think it's a matter of either or. I think if you look at lean training models, going back to um, a method called TWI, training within industry, the one, one way in which TWI or lean standardized work is different than the old typical SOPs, you know, binders full of uh, uh, documents that just tell people what to do. The one difference is TWI job instructions explain why that's important, why you should do things a certain way. And it, it takes a conversation beyond do it because I said so to do it because of this reason. And, and in training, a supervisor or a trainer can certainly tell stories to help emphasize from a customer perspective or just from the bigger picture internally, you know, here, here's why this matters. Here's why you need to do it that way. So I, I think you're gonna incorporate stories into procedures and into training. I mean, stories are a really powerful way to convey a concept, right? Because we can remember a story versus kind of a random sequence of events or a random set of facts. And so you, I think, can use story to, to explain the why um, very well, but also it, um, that, that why will then be more stuck in that person's head and they'll be able to explain it to their colleague um, because the stories are really, I mean, think about oral history, right? It's just a, a series of stories. How did, before people wrote things down, I mean, it wasn't just, and then on, you know, on, you know, 464 days later, a person walked in the field and did, no, there's a whole story behind it. And, and you can really wrap your head around because at that point, you're just kind of learning a pattern and there's a beginning and a middle and an end. And you're also kind of creating more of a connection to, to someone's emotion story. Right. So I really think that you're going to use these hand in hand um, to get to get where you need to be going. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, Toyota people, former Toyota people I've worked with, talk about the need to engage heads and hearts, hearts and minds. As an engineer, it's easy to, to think about just, well, you know, logically what should be done or logically, rationally, what is best. But obviously we've got to realize, you know, people have uh, emotions, people are complex. Just because something is logically better to do doesn't mean we agree to do it or that we buy into it. Um, one other thought that comes to mind well, I was at a patient safety conference in late January, and one of the physician leaders from a health system was talking about the need to not just use data, but to also use stories. So, yes, the data matters, but the stories are powerful, too. We have to try to, I think, appeal to both sides when we're facing a big challenge, such as the need to improve patient safety. It's, it's really interesting kind of taking from my medical background and applying it to at least this question when I started studying medicine in the late 90s um, to probably about, you know, through residency into the early, into the early aughts, um, you really did see a shift in how information was being conveyed. And that shift is, is, is really case-based. You know, most lectures that you will sit in, or at least in, you know, lectures that you remember, and they'll present a case to you. So it may be a urology subject, but 
that will be with five different patients. Because you can wrap your head around the story of a patient coming to you and, oh, say there's a 56-year-old guy that comes in and da 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 and, and, you're, and you're engaged with that story and you're trying to figure out what's the diagnosis and what's the treatment plan. And then there's a little education behind it. Okay, well, th- these are the five things in your differential. Let's talk about why it's this or not that. And, and then you can kind of framework that. But it engages people to actually listen because um, people, you know, we, we like stories. There's a whole, yeah. you know, sitting around the fire, um, whole big areas of our, our brain that's all about um, understanding and conveying and, and, and remembering stories. Yeah. So our next question maybe takes things maybe from stories back into data. Maybe it takes us back into both areas. Um, I'm sorry. I love data. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Uh, Muhammad asks, can you suggest a basic framework for implementing uh, successful continuous improvements in an organization? And how do you translate that action into financial returns that the company's management can understand? Greg, do you want to, do you want to touch on that first? So that's a really, um, complex question that we could probably answer in lots of different ways. So um, a couple things come to mind. So I think for one, taking the mistake of planning forever and never doing um, will never get you anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so the, you know, the enemy of, of, of uh, is what was the enemy of perfect is good enough. Or I'm, I'm don't, don't, don't let our, uh, well, now I'm stumbling on it. Don't let perfect get in the way of better or something right. like that. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so what what we found at our organizations that we're helping to spread continuous improvement at is recognizing, okay, so we're going to spread doing daily work or, or managing all the improvement work in Kinexus and connecting people. Let's not worry about rolling that out to all 2,500 people on Monday. You know, let's, let's break this problem, this larger problem down into smaller, and then recognize, okay, so we're going to do a department, and then we're going to do a couple departments, and we're going to spread, and as we're spreading, we're iterating, and we're learning, and we're doing PDSA, and we're getting better and better and better as that goes through, and all of a sudden, you break a really, really complex, hard problem down into 100 solvable steps, and and I think that's the way I view probably one of the most important things to think about when I'm thinking about this question. Mark, what are your thoughts? Well, so let, let me talk about the idea of um, tying improvement into benefits. Um, okay. So a lot of times executives will focus on the financial return, the ROI, return on investment, cost savings, revenue enhancement. But there are more categories of benefit than that. I mean, I, I'm always encouraged. I was talking to somebody in an organization's executive team earlier this morning, and they said before I could say it, that, well, there's more to this than just cost reduction. There's more to this than just ROI because you have customer satisfaction that matters, improving employee morale, um, improving the quality of customer service. Now, that all eventually should feed into the bottom line because they realize, for example, if employees are stressed and turnover is high, that costs them a lot of money because they're offering pay raises to get people to stay. They're having to hire replacements. So it doesn't have to all be directly a cost elimination, but it can be a financial benefit that that flows through from working on the other things that matter. So you may see a short-term effect of people 
quantifying or uh, categorizing. We've implemented X improvements that affect customer service. We don't know the ROI of each of those improvements, but over time, if we're working on the right things and if we're solving problems, we'll see the bottom line improve. So I think also it, what we've seen work is that the less you focus on this, and I think this really applies, Mark, to the, to the front line. Because really the, the person on the front line, if you're, if you're leading with, oh, we're going to save money, there's no warm fuzzy there, right? They're going to, your, your engagement level, you're immediately hurting your engagement level. And what we also find out then is once people are engaged, for one, improvements have lots of different impact, which some have indirect, but then there are going to be improvements that are going to have direct financial impact without asking, right? Don't, don't go up to bat and say only hit a home run. Just get on base. Sometimes you're going to hit a home run, and, and we've yeah. seen that, right? We've seen 1.5% of all completed improvements have a value of more than $100,000 to the organization, and 2.5% of them have a value of more than $10,000 to the organization. So you are going to be affecting that. Um, I will say that a uh, caveat, and we've seen this be real successful, I think if you're dealing with leaders, that I think you can actually get them to focus on the bottom line with success at a much higher rate because oftentimes, you know, upper level management and senior leaders, their pain point is the bottom line. So they, they are focused and, and we've seen that be successful. I think that if you are going in right into the trenches, down right where the value, it, you know, at the customer or meeting, don't lead with that. Get people engaged. It will be a byproduct. And if you right. to engage that in the future, you can, you'll be much more successful with an engaged group than with people that are starting off. Yeah, and I think, you know, this classic Kaizen advice going back to Masaki Amai almost 30 years ago who would say, you know, your first jo job, phase one, is just get people participating. Just get them identifying opportunities and implementing improvements. Then over time, you can work on alignment to organizational goals. And, you know, what I've seen, I think, reinforced in my own experience, if you start with, if you get participation, you have a hope of getting alignment. If you're trying too quickly to force alignment, you might not get participation and engagement. So, um, you know, you have to let people work on what they want to work on to a big extent. And really, we're talking about building up trust because a lot of people have been in organizations where they started this type of work and have failed, right? And so there's going to be like, oh, hold on, you're saying this, I've, I've seen this pattern before, and it failed, uh, let's just, you know, and so I think that it really increases your chance of success. I mean, if you look at, if you look at all of our improvements, about 45 to 50% of them are staff satisfaction, that's the impact. Mm -hmm. So um, that's great. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that um, whatsoever. And um, so if you say, well, the biggest chunk of improvements, we don't want you to focus on those. And you're like, well, why are you setting yourself up to make it more hard to start things off to begin with? So. Yeah. All right. Well, I've got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, there was one question that came in. It's not too off the wall, but it's a little bit off the topic of improvement. Uh, uh, Ahmed asked, uh, I'm starting a question for me. I'm starting a lean healthcare blog soon. Looking back to your beginnings, what are the do's and don'ts of starting the blog and what things would you do differently 
at the beginning. One, I think, very tactical thing I would have done differently at the beginning is I would have started with my own domain name from the beginning. So when I started my blog, the web address was kanban.blogspot.com. And it was a terrible name because, for one, my blog wasn't just about Kanban as one lean method. The branding was Blogspot as opposed to my own. So, you know, I started off as an experiment with that simple way that was free, but I should have more quickly, after a couple of years, I made the transition to using leanblog.org as a domain. And so I, you know, my advice to people is always just, just pick a domain name that's uh, easy to remember and uh, you know, resonates and, and start with that from the beginning. That doesn't cost more than about 10 bucks. So it's still not a huge expense. Even if you're using a free blog hosting service, go ahead and buy a domain name. So I think that's one of my lessons. Other things I would have done differently, I mean, I think around content, um, right or wrong, I, I guess this is more advice on what would I do differently, um, to, to the blogger or anybody who wants to blog, uh, for one, blog on a, a regular schedule. If that's weekly, do it weekly. If it's uh, daily, do it daily. And you know, I would always recommend if you get into a big fit of writing, schedule out blog posts. Don't publish seven posts on one day and then go silent for a month. There's lots of different reasons just to have a good, steady, um, level-loaded pace, which I guess is a lean concept. Greg, maybe let me steer this to you in a little bit different way. You know, a blog is a fairly trivial startup compared to a software company. You've been at this for uh, for five years or longer than that. What are some of your reflections on starting a company? Wow. Um, ignorance. Just throwing that at you. What would you do? Yeah, really, you really no, no pressure. Um, ignorance is bliss? No. Uh, I think... In, in all honesty, I think that, that um, Matt, um, my co-founder and I, there's a part of me that thinks had we had known um, how hard it is and how much work it really is to, to build an enterprise SaaS um, product um, at the beginning, I, I don't know if I would have gone down the road. Hmm. Um, I, am, I couldn't be happier that I took that first step. Right. And so it, it's kind of analogous to what I said before, which is, hey, if, if you're thinking about, OK, I'm, I'm here and I have an idea and, and I want to be there. I want to have you know, a successful you know, enterprise software company. That's a really ominous kind of thing to think through. But if you're like, OK, well, what's will be the next thing I need to do? OK, well, why don't we go see if anything else exists out in the, in the, in the market that, that does this. And then, okay, and then kind of doing in steps, um, I think that um, that was, it, it allowed us to do the concept of ignorance is bliss. Um, and uh, I don't know, things happen the way they happen for reasons. And I talk to you, Mark, all the time that we, you know, in, in many ways, we were we were kind of lucky with the way the product evolved in that we really tried to solve the, okay, well, if Mizaki and I could, you know, be sitting here and we could have had his wisdom of how would you create a piece of software that could support and could allow that type of behavior that he writes about in the book to happen faster, 
we started from that point and, and, and then we layered the onion around that. And um, it, I think it's really created an environment that, that models lean thinking in a, in a really, in a really pure way. Um, and so there's a lot that, that we didn't try to read 15 books. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we kind of tried to say, okay, this is a really simple process and then let's see if we can't model this. And then, and then we kind of just continue to iterate. So, um, um, and, you know, toss in some, some luck and some hard work and a good idea and then surround yourself with a, a really, you know, talented people and uh, hopefully you can get some investor money and next thing you know, you're, you know, well down the road. Yeah. Well, thank, thanks for the uh, the honest reflections. And put you, I guess that's one way to get honest answers is put someone on the spot. Yeah, you really did. Yeah. You couldn't have told me that I'm going to ask this one at the end of this <laughs> yesterday. <Yeah. laughs> But what, so, what, so to wrap up, what did we learn about Greg? Earlier, we learned he practices what he preaches in running the startup and trying to use the principles that our customers use and that he wants us using. And Greg gives honest answers. So those are good traits. <laughs> in, in addition to being able to take the risk um, to start a company. So we want to thank everybody for taking a risk and joining us. Today, here on uh, our Ask Us Anything broadcast, we're taking a bit of a risk using a beta product as much as I've enjoyed um, a lot of the aspects of, of the Blab platform. We apologize for the little glitch earlier. Hopefully, the recording turned out okay. And if it did, I'll edit out my finger cross. But I want to thank everybody for joining us. Uh, the audience builds here each time. We're going to do another one of these in two months. So we will notify people in April. We're going to take a month off from these, but we will come back and do more of these. So thank you for joining us, Greg. Do you have any parting words? I want to really, I want to plug our blog. Um, you know, Maggie leads up that effort. We have a team of people writing on that. There is always food for thought on that. We have a lot of our customers and, and non-customers really kind of creating this tribe. And, and, and think of these, think of the blog posts and think of our eBooks as just really great things you can spread across your team. We're trying to take that burden off of you. Um, we, Mark, you've, you've really scheduled out a, a great webinar series this year. We're, I think, booked through most of the summer at this point with a really a nice mix of um, kind of lean thought leaders, um, some of our customers and, and what they're doing um, with continuous improvement. And uh, so next month we're doing a you know, our typical regular webinar, but then we're going to do a, a Kinexus in Action um, webinar, and then the following month, another one of these. So it seems like we're doing kind of like a primary webinar and a secondary webinar. So right. um, please kind of consume what we're doing, give us feedback, tell us what you like, tell us what you don't like. Um, it's a lot of fun, you know, adding to the kind of the global knowledge of continuous improvement. So. Yeah, so I invite everyone to go to blog.kinexus.com. Or for the webinars, you can go to kinexus.com slash webinars. Uh, we'll see you in March with Jacob Stoller. I'll be hosting his webinar um, talking about his book, The Lean CEO. So I want to thank you for joining us and um, for staying connected in the future. Thanks. Bye-bye.